Hi guys, I'm Gwen Paltrow. Paltrow. Every, Every Thursday, Thursday Goop, Goop editors, editors will be sitting, be sitting down with provocative, provocative thinkers, thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture, and culture changers. I'll take, I'll take turns, turns interviewing barrier, barrier breaking guests, guests as we as talk we about shifting old paradigms and starting, and starting new, conversations. new conversations. Today's guest is Oscar Saralak, a family doctor based in Australia who coined the concept of postnatal depletion, which he was observing in his patients for up to seven years after they had given birth. Postnatal depletion is exactly what it sounds like, being completely run down to the point of exhaustion after having kids. He could find very little in published scientific literature about the subject, and so he began digging deeper. I've been diving deep with this for the last seven to eight years, and I've just seen slowly but surely a shift in both the medical profession and also just in the dialogues that I'm hearing on the media and amongst society about, no, it's okay for a mother to maybe have three months maternity leave or have a team of people around her and she's not being selfish. His first piece on Goop nearly broke the site because so many women could relate. And it led to Dr. Saralak's first book, The Postnatal Depletion Cure, which is out now from Goop Press. Dr. Saralak sat down with our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, to unpack the kind of support that moms typically receive in 2018 and how we can do much better. And in America, it's quite, it's, it's probably the most exaggerated country in the world for, for the factors leading to postnatal depletion in terms of, like you say, with the, the lack of federal support uh, with maternity care. Uh, Americans are probably amongst the hardest working in the world in terms of long hours and And there's also a real belief that you can do it all yourself. After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and Dr. Saralak. I wanted to kick this off by talking about how you came to this understanding of postnatal depletion and how you started to recognize it in your own practice. Uh, Thanks, Elise. It's great to be here. Well, essentially, it's just my journey of uh, being a father and a doctor simultaneously. Uh, And I happened to finish my family medicine training at the time that I started a family. And uh, I started to learn sort of functional medicine, which is the medicine of learning about vitamins, minerals, and hormones. And that was superimposed at the time when the birth of my sort of first child. And I've got three children. They're 12, 10, and nearly 8 now. Uh, after the birth of each child, my, my partner Caroline has got progressively more lethargic and, and problems with concentration and memory. And I started noticing that was a real pattern amongst you know, not only you know, my friends, but a lot of the clients that I was sort of seeing. And I thought, ah, oh, pattern, okay, there's, there's something really to this. And I went to the medical sort of textbooks to have a look at you know, what the pattern was about. And I couldn't really find anything anywhere about... Uh, this postnatal sort of period. And so there's a gaping hole in medicine when it comes to uh, the physiology and the workings of a woman's body uh, in the time after the birth of a baby. And I think it's... So that was kind of sort of my starting point with with that. And learning functional medicine at that time was very useful because I, I could see that there were patterns around... If I was studying sort of iron or if I was studying vitamin B12, if I was having a look at sort of hormonal sort of patterns, I could 
see that there was a fingerprint almost uh, that was happening in the postnatal period that was quite unique. Uh, so you know, that just sort of led me to read more and more about it. And what's interesting is there are bits and pieces of research around postnatal well-being, but they're not really synthesized in a particularly meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I met you through Dr. Alejandro Younger, um, who I was talking to after the birth of my first child. I was about a year out, and I was talking to him and explaining that I just felt terrible, and I was getting good sleep. Max was always a good sleeper, but I just never recovered. I was still overweight. I was dragging. I didn't feel like myself. And I think, you know, every woman, almost every woman can relate to that feeling of like, I know what it feels like to feel good and I don't feel good. And I had been sort of summarily dismissed at my OBGYN and um, Younger put me on sort of a B12 replenishment plan. He put me on clean and I started to feel dramatically better, but he also connected me to you. And we did a piece together on Goop about this idea of postnatal depletion, which I think you have sort of coined or at least pushed into the mainstream, which was so incredibly resonant with readers because what you explained is that women can experience this for seven to 10 years after they have a child. It's not necessarily a new mom syndrome. And that, you know, as we sort of know, like, it seems like pregnancy is the gateway drug to a lot of autoimmune disease as well, that women just never recover. Um, and so thinking about that, like what, what are the things, and, and you just wrote a book, The Postnatal Depletion Cure, which gives us all hope under Goop Press, which is out now. Um, but, but what, and I know that there's a lot of actionable advice for sort of rebuilding, but like, what are the sort of the baseline things that you should be asking your doctor for and thinking about both prenatally and postnatally? Well, I think the first thing is just around acknowledgement that you're not feeling well. I think it may be okay for a mother to feel slow, you know, to feel depleted for a very short while after the birth of the baby, but certainly not months, certainly not years after the birth of a baby. And you know, the first thing I'd recommend is to really try to connect with your primary care physician and just say, I'm not feeling well, and this is not just a normal part of motherhood. And to try to get a support team around that mother. So the primary care physician is just one of those sort of people. Uh, you know, there may be other people in terms of a naturopath and social workers and psychologists just to help with the myriad of things that is going on with uh, postnatally. But it's you know it's very complex. There are many layers to it. Uh, and in terms of uh, labs. I think it's really important to do a full hormone panel, and a lot of primary care physicians may not be used to or familiar with checking for hormones that aren't in the disease paradigm, as it were. But I think that's certainly very, uh, probably the most important uh, set of testing to get done, and then to get a really good micronutrient panel done, looking at things like iron and vitamin D, zinc. Uh, copper, seroplasmin, homocysteine, uh, just to name a few, to just to really have a look at where the depletion and the insufficiencies are in a woman's body. Because not every woman is the same. There are themes that are occurring, and I, I in my office, I have a, a, a checklist of, of just to make sure of what things we've looked at, what the mother's doing well, where she needs support, and what the sort of 
medium and long-term game for her recovery sort of looks like. It's, it's not uh, a cookie-cutter approach in terms of medicine, and it's certainly uh, not a disease uh, process, postnatal depletion. It's a syndrome, so it's a cluster of these symptoms and signs that uh, occur after the birth of a child, and each woman's sort of slightly different, so it has to be tailored, but they're the big things to look at so hormones and micronutrients and then what other things that may specifically be going on for that mother Mm -hmm. i was heartened to learn that we here in the states that we recently changed i guess the guidelines Mm. because it was sort of a six-week checkup i think anyone who's been pregnant has had this experience of an overwhelming amount of attention and care while you're pregnant and then you're not pregnant anymore you've just had a major medical event and your doctor is like I'll see you in six weeks, and then I'll see you in a year. And now I guess it's three weeks, six weeks, and 12 weeks, yes. I believe, um, But which is promising. But I still think I like this idea of a plan of really finding a way to, particularly here in the U.S., of finding a functional MD or, or a naturopath or whatever it is. He will play health coach with you. Um, in those early days, how soon is it, when is it too early to check hormones and, and check these levels and when's ideal and how frequently should women probably do this in an ideal state? For me, probably the earliest that I would be doing a hormone check is around three months. Uh, if a mother's feeling particularly tired or really struggling, I, I, I think there are lots of other interventions you can do to help support. Uh, and one of the things that's really important to realize is during pregnancy, you know, the, the placenta makes 200 different hormones for the body. The estrogen levels in a woman goes up 30 times above baseline. Progesterone goes up 10 times above baseline. Cortisol, you know, the, the fight-flight response hormone goes up three times above baseline. And so there needs to be an adjustment time once the baby's born and the placenta's delivered for the hormones to sort of settle, as it were. And this is why so many old cultures have a four- to six-week uh, period where the mother isn't really allowed to do very much. She has to be fairly uh, uh, quiet, not going out into society too often, and um, just a time to recover. And I think a lot of that is just ancient wisdom looking at proper hormonal recovery for the mother after she's had these uh, huge amounts of hormones in her system in the nine months leading up to the birth of the baby. So, you know, three months is probably a time that I would recommend checking hormones just to see where a mother is at. And then pretty regularly after that, assuming that you're, you need some rehabilitation. Yeah, so I tend to do six to 12 weekly sort of checkups depending on the needs of the mother. If a mother's you know, feeling extremely tired, hypervigilance, uh, anxiety, uh, very sensitive to sound and very sensitive to bright lights and uh, very poor energy. So that sense of really deep lethargy, uh, especially waking up in the morning and just feeling, oh, I have got no energy for the for the day. They're, no, they're the mums I worry about most. And so I'll be seeing them every six weeks and, and doing uh, fairly comprehensive labs until they're feeling a lot more like themselves and a lot better. Mm-hmm. What do you recommend as sort of an ideal difference between, you know, when, before you go on to have your second baby or your third baby in terms of giving yourself a, a chance to really replenish? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I don't think that's been well studied on any sort of level, but I think from a physiological level, and I, I try to get my mums to wait at least two years between uh, 
babies and it's interesting when you look in the animal world, you know, uh, apes, for example, tend to only have offspring once every three to five years. So they, they space things out you know, much more than the, the average human does in terms of children. So just to give yourself sort of a fighting chance of rehabilitating and then having, I guess, a less deplete. I mean, it seems like it becomes more profound the more children you have. Yeah, and, and one of the huge factors is the loss of sleep. So the average mother loses 700 hours of sleep in the first year after the birth of a, a child. And so it's really important to reestablish sleep patterns and circadian rhythm before you know, starting again with an, another child and going back into that uh, sleep deprivation tunnel, as it were. You know, if you and if you have your children too close together, that sleep deprivation uh, you know, uh, becomes a synergistic thing in terms of a mother feeling uh, really unwell and overwhelmed and lethargic, and it takes longer for her to re- recover. Right, and the hormone generation from sleep probably only throws things out of whack even more. Yeah, so a, a couple of the really important hormones such as DHEA uh, are only made when we sleep. And so if you have fragmented sleep, one of the hormones that's going to allow you to recover, DHEA, uh, isn't being made in s- sufficient sort of quantity. So it's uh, it's furthering the slip backwards, as it were, in terms of uh, that depletion state. So... And let's talk about supplementation a little bit because you also helped us create the mother load, which is one of our wellness protocols, which was made for both pre and postnatal women. All things being equal, like even if you're a really good eater, what do you think is essential for both pre and postnatal women in terms of things that they're adding through supplements? Yeah, so uh, probably the three most important, uh, one is DHA, and that's an omega-3 that comes from fish uh, and algae, Uh, and it's very hard to get enough of that in your diet uh, to recover from the losses during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Uh, You can certainly maintain levels through diet, so DHA is a very important one. Uh, secondly, probably magnesium and zinc. Uh, it's, it's not easy to get huge amounts of magnesium and zinc through diet, so I often will supplement with those for three to six months depending on what the mother needs and then how can we get those things through food. Uh, I'm always going from supplements to you know, superfoods. Ideally, if we can get things from our food, then that's ideal. But a lot of our foods just don't have the nutrient density that they they would have 50, 100 years ago. So we're, we're talking about depleted food going into depleted mothers, and that's not uh, a great mathematical equation, unfortunately, mm-hmm. when you're looking at recovery. What does an ideal postnatal diet look like? No, there's no perfect diet, and there's no cookie-cutter approach to what a diet looks like for a mother. But I think some of the things, and I, I borrow a lot of this my advice from what a lot of the ancient cultures do in terms of their postpartum practices to help mothers recover. And they will often have you know, 6 to 12 weeks of reducing amounts of raw food and really having lots of cooked food, food foods that are already sort of partially broken down through the cooking process, slow cooking, that are full of sort of nutrients, so soups that have lots of perhaps bone broth or lots of vegetables and oil sort of added to that soup and and it's you know uh, it's probably a good example of an ideal sort of food uh, one of the other 
uh, foods that I think is uh, a superfood for recovering mothers is fish. And obviously we have to be a little bit careful with what we're doing to fish stocks and polluting the oceans. But I think a lot of the small oily fish are a perfect food for mothers to sort of have. And you know, for my vegetarian and vegan mothers, I'll often really push sort of the algae oils and uh, see vegetables as part of that, uh, trying to replace those things that, uh, in terms of the DHA and, and some of those uh, sea minerals. Mm-hmm. And then I would imagine lots of other healthy fats like avocado, is that? Avocado. Uh, I'm a big fan of dairy fats as well, so uh, butter and ghee and fats from dairy. Coconut oil is, I think, fantastic. It can be used with a lot of different uh, foods. And I, I get a lot of my mums to sort of use MCT oils, which is a derivative of coconut oil that can be, you know, you can use it on your salad and you can use it as a additive to your cooking. And uh, and olive oil is probably the other one that uh, a lot of people are familiar with just from a cultural point of view, but just to really push using liberal amounts of that in in your food and in your salads and and, uh, in your dressings. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of good sleep, which is elusive for many people, many parents, but so essential, and I feel like there's so much pressure Mm. to get good sleep. Do you have any suggestions or or guidelines for what's, what's generally doable for new parents? Yeah, well, lack of sleep is a real Achilles heel for a lot of mothers. And, you know, my first you know, piece of advice is that sleep is not negotiable. And so trying to get to bed as early as possible. You know, so many of my mothers say, but no, once the baby goes to sleep, I've got a couple of hours for me. Uh, in terms of recovery, those couple of hours are not worth it in terms of, and it can you know, definitely slow your recovery if you're up later than you perhaps sort of should be. So going to bed early is number one. Uh, if you're having sort of broken uh, sleep during the night, then what I often recommend is to try to do things during the day that will help you be able to cope with the effects of sleep deprivation. So one of the things that I'll coach my mothers about is taking uh, micro naps or 15 to 20 minutes sort of sleeps during the day. If you sleep longer than that 15 to 20 minutes, it can actually uh, corrupt your ability to be able to get good quality sleep later on in the night. So, But you can have as many of those 15 to 20 minute naps as you like. And it's almost like you want to touch sleep, but not necessarily go to sleep in that time. And that will give you a few hours of of extra energy as it were the other things that can really help offset the effects of uh, poor sleep or broken sleep are what i call the restorative practices so they include acupuncture restorative yoga and then the restorative herbs that you can take that you know if you're having one or two hours less sleep per night all those things can help you feel better during the day and offset that really deep fatigue that uh, is uh, so horrible to experience for for many mothers. Are the do you recommend like adaptogens or? Yeah, so they're in the adaptogenic class, and so in Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, they have herbs that have been used for hundreds and thousands, hundreds if not thousands of years in terms of helping specifically for mothers and for uh, fatigue as well, and so. So I always recommend 
that my mother's either see a naturopath or I'll prescribe sort of herbs mm-hmm. uh, for them depending on what their need is. And mm-hmm. I love this idea too. I mean, obviously, when you have a child, there are a lot of people family, et cetera, who want to descend on you, visitors. And I love the way that you have sort of reframed that as an opportunity to marshal friends and family to actually do things that you need them to do. You sort of talk a little bit about ways to redirect the attention of visitors. Yeah. And so often there are many family and friends who have the best intentions, but end up getting in the way. And the last thing you want a depleted mother to be having to do is be servant to their parents or friends coming over and, and um, you know, having showtime with the baby, as it were. And so, you know, I, I teach all my mothers and uh, their partners as well that no visitors, only staff. So if you have anyone coming over in those first few months, sure, they can see the baby, but give them a job to do. And the job can be something like preparing a meal. It can be sort of taking the the trash out. It can be uh, helping with something in the garden or something that you're needing to get your car serviced. But and the feedback that I get is that those other involved people are really appreciative because they want to help. They but they in their wanting to help, they often can get in the way. And so uh, and it, it shouldn't be up to a recovering potentially fragile mother to have to police that so if the discussions can be had before the birth before the birth of the baby uh, around what the new rules are that is hugely helpful so no visitors only staff and everyone kind of chuckles at that but they kind of get yeah that's where it should be yeah, you're making the staff entertain the staff right <laughs> yeah. um, and, and using your partner to direct so that you don't feel bad about it. Yeah, and partners uh, often feel really good to be given a, a directive as well, and they mm-hmm. can be the the policeman or the policewoman at the door and to say, um, you know, you shall not pass, or what what jobs are you doing today, and can check the, check it off on the <laughs> roster. Um, and I've I've heard lots of you know, really warm stories around uh, helping create sort of communities around the recovering mother and, and beyond. So it's uh, uh, at, at the end of the day, building communities is what we're really trying to sort of do with this uh, mother care and mother revival. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Dr. Saralak in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. As you've probably heard, bone broth has been jettisoned into the mainstream as something we could all use more of in our modern diets. One of the companies that is responsible for this movement is Ancient Nutrition, Dr. Josh Axe's line of superfood supplements. Bone broth deserves the moniker of superfood because it's hard and labor-intensive to make and it's expensive to do it right. Ancient Nutrition makes it really accessible with their incredible bone broth protein, which is packed with collagen and other goodies, including hyaluronic acid, glucosamine, chondroitin, and even potassium. Like the other products in their line, the ingredient list is short. Bone broth protein concentrate sourced from natural chickens. The products are tested to be free of GMOs, hormones, and antibiotics, and they also make a version that's organic as well. Besides being great for general wellness, bone broth protein can help support joint mobility and flexibility, digestive health, and healthy skin, hair, and nails. 
check out the store at ancientnutrition.com shop. Goop fans will get $10 off their first purchase using promo code Goop. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Dr. Saralak. What's your advice to mothers who might have kids who are slightly older but who never recovered? Um, where do you where do you coach them? Like, where should they start? What's the best? No, and these are typically mothers who have kids seven years or older, and they just felt like they've never recovered, uh, or they've kind of stayed in this brain fog, anxiety sort of state, and it's really derailed their sense of purpose and their creativity and their just their role in turning up in life. And uh, now these mothers need uh, quite a different sort of approach because they're often not that low in nutrients uh, but they often can have very uh, locked hormones and what I mean by that is some hormones can be very low such as cortisol DHEA and some hormones such as leptin and sometimes testosterone can be locked into sort of a, uh, an over functioning sort of state and so uh, and I think hormone testing can sort of be really sort of useful but I also do a lot of coaching around uh, purpose, creativity, and trying to find uh, that woman's sort of spark again in terms of re-engaging with her life. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about leptin resistance and how that manifests? Yeah, so it's interesting. Leptin, I think it was only discovered in the mid-90s, and they, you know, leptin is a little bit similar to what insulin is to sugar. Leptin is to fat. Uh, leptin is made by the fat cells to signal to the brain about how much fat or energy stores the body has. And there is something called leptin resistance where the brain gets confused with the signal. And so the fat cells start producing more and more leptin, but the brain doesn't hear it. And so the brain gets tricked into thinking that the body's actually really skinny and now, the mother can be quite uh, overweight or carrying extra pounds, but the brain literally thinks that the body is super skinny. And so exercise and diet don't work particularly well in that set of mathematics, as it were. So you have to do a lot to – mothers need a lot of support in helping reduce the leptin resistance. And what's interesting is that the cause of the leptin resistance tends to be – a ongoing disruption of the sleep pattern so circadian rhythm gets really affected ongoing so over months and months sometimes years and that's a classic way to set up leptin resistance and these are the mothers that find that they're starting to gain weight for no particular reason they're not eating very much they're really tired they have brain fog and at the top of the hormone tree leptin is is causing a lot of those sort of symptoms so and I'll, you know, I'll coach my mothers through going through what's called a leptin reset. Uh, and there are various aspects of that you can find a lot about on, on the web. There are various sort of variations of that, but it's helping just to get that circadian rhythm truly back into, into function and lessen that leptin resistance. It's quite slow work, but it's, it's uh, really important. It can be quite profound that uh, a mother will be feeling better and she starts to normalize her weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I feel like that's such an important part of feeling like yourself again. Mm. You know, I think 
in our culture that gets wrapped up in vanity often, you know, that final 10 pounds or the final mm. 20 pounds or whatever it is. But really it's like both practical because you're, you want to be able to wear your clothes again, <laughs> but it's also just this feeling of being back in your body, which is so incredibly evasive. Yeah. And no, I think one of the things that happens is it, there's a real push to get back to your prenatal body. Yeah, and that never really happens because your body has been literally changed uh, during that process. But you should be able to get back to a, a body that you feel sort of really comfortable in, in wearing your old clothes, as it were. And one of the good things about leptin resistance at least validates mothers. Um, they often feel that people are looking at them, oh, you've let yourself go, or you're not trying hard enough, and... And, and mothers can be their own worst critics a, a lot of the time. And so at least show, you know, doing a test, a fasting leptin and just showing that that's high, you know, proving leptin resistance, it's at least validating going, okay, well, we, we need a different set of mm-hmm. mathematics. It's not about calories in, calories out and exercise. It's going to correct this. So we need to at least go with where the, the issue is. Totally. And that, that validation is so important because mm. as a mother everything changes you know um matrescence and the act of becoming a mother and but then there are things where you're like but why did this change like why did my ability to like eat like a normal person and not be overweight change that feels like an important tool to have in the toolkit and mm. i think too just this having the conversation naming the syndrome creating sort of a conversation around how important this postnatal period is for women. It's clearly it's like it's starting to have an effect. Like if guidelines are changing, if women start asking and advocating and pushing, that's where I think it has to start. Yeah, and just in you know, I've been uh diving deep with this for the last seven to eight years and I've just seen slowly but surely a shift in both the medical profession and also just in the dialogues that I'm hearing on the media and, and amongst society about, you know, it's okay for a mother to, you know, maybe have three months maternity leave or have a team of people around her and she's not being selfish. You know, that's the starting point mm-hmm. in terms of uh, helping mothers because, you know, no mother is not trying hard enough, but so many mothers don't have enough support and so that's for me the starting point Look, looking at what supports does that mother have and with their budget and with their resources what can they sort of bring into that circle yeah and it's more important than ever particularly in places like the united states where there's absolutely no federally supported paid family leave which is insane mm. and i think that for the conversation to permeate the culture. It's like every woman pre or postnatally. And really it's, it's like the postnatal women who are, that's the slap in the face. You're like, Whoa, I did not know. It's like getting that information to younger women so they can start demanding a better system so that they don't have the same experience. Yeah, being prepared and forewarned as it were. Um, no, I, I coach a number of mothers during pregnancy so they don't become postnatal sort of casualties. And that's you know, much more rewarding for me than trying to get someone out of a, a deep, dark hole, as it were. And, and in America, it's quite 
it's it's probably the most exaggerated country in the world for for the factors leading to postnatal depletion in terms of like you say with the the lack of federal support with maternity care. Uh, Americans are probably amongst the hardest working in the world in terms of long hours and. And there's also a real belief that you can do it all yourself. Mm-hmm. And then the lack of extended family. So a lot of other countries are still having aunties and grandparents living at least sort of close by. I'm amazed in America that uh, many people aren't even living in the same state as their extended family. And so they, from a family point of view, are very isolated. So they're trying to get in help mm-hmm. from neighbours or friends and that's a much mm-hmm. harder mm-hmm. rally call as it were to, to bring those people in because they may not understand your needs or, or necessarily be that that interested. Exactly and I think that there's been somewhat of a cone of silence around this in our culture because mm. parenting is so triggering and what kind of mother am I is a very triggering conversation and I can't do this all myself or I'm depressed or I feel fat. You know, it's all very shameful in America. And I feel like so many women just struggle and suffer alone. And it's sometimes only years later that there's a reconciliation of your experience with even close friends. And there's this idea like it's natural. Of course, I'm supposed to know how to do it. Or it's natural. Of course, I'm supposed to be able to have a perfect vaginal birth with no drugs. And it's natural. Of course, I'm supposed to be able to breastfeed. And, you know, that's not a reality for a massive amount of women. And so I think we all just carry the shame. And the disappointment just kind of gets swept under the carpet. And, and, and many mothers are having to carry that. And it's... it's um I think it's very sad, but also there's a lot of lost opportunities and and mothers don't end up stepping forward into the life that they'd really like to when you've got those types of dynamics occurring. And there's such an incredible collective toolkit to build of knowledge, just both sourced from ancient cultures and sort of from each other. And I think that as we see more honesty and less Instagram perfection emerging, that things maybe will start to really change. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there, Elise, and there's much more authenticity in the space of mother care now, and that's very exciting for me, and there's more research and there's more ways of supporting and being able to validate being able to, around sort of this maternal sort of care. So t- times are improving, not fast enough, but it's uh, we're getting there. Well, thank you so much for coming. A pleasure, Elise. Thanks for joining our interview with Dr. Oscar Saralak. You can learn more about his work at oscarsaralak.com and at goop.com slash the podcast. And you can get his book, The Postnatal Depletion, on Goop or wherever books are sold. Okay, on to that promised Ask Me Anything. Lisa would like to know what my daily uniform looks like. Today's a bad example because I'm wearing exercise pants. Kiki, what's my daily uniform? I think you wear a lot of like high-waisted, like pants. Kiki says I wear a lot of high-waisted pants, which is true with tucked-in blouses. That's right. That is true. That is kind of like my work uniform. Yeah, I'm very into the blouses that we make at Goop at G Label, and I think they're kind of feminine and cool. 
at the same time, like a little puff sleeve or something. I think I wear a lot of G-Label. It's why we designed the collection, you know, to have really wearable, great work pieces that then you can wear to dinner or to a soccer game and not feel out of place anywhere. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.